What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the 7 Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen. Today, I've got another virtual accelerator presentation for you guys. This one was really great. I spent the entire day today listening and watching all the recordings of this event. Uh, I was out of town in Las Vegas speaking at a couple other events. It had a mastermind meeting for me. And every single presentation was killer. Like I, I couldn't pick just one, so I'm putting them all out here on the show. Mike Simmons's virtual accelerator presentation was amazing. If you've never heard him talk about his dispositions model and why he thinks it's so important, you've got to pay attention to this. And if you have heard it, there's five to 10 things in here that I hadn't heard before, especially right now in this cooling market, as he was calling it. So how to increase profits on every deal and crush your competition in a cooling market. I think it's gonna be really important, I agree with Mike, on the disposition side of things. I think finding deals is gonna become a bit easier as right now sellers are still in this this world of um, not really accepting the fact that things might be changing. They still want like last like three months ago pricing for their home and things like that. So that's happening, but they haven't really let go of that. They will as they continue to get into more and more distress, I feel like unemployment is gonna start going up. Uh, we will start continuing to fall down and, and unemployment's gonna start going up as businesses struggle a bit, as people spend less money. And inside of that, it starts bringing distress and distress brings deals to us, but then on the back end, there's uncertainty and what, what happens on the sale of our homes is uncertainty becomes the area that we need to focus on. So we need to focus on building really quality buyers lists, really um, building our customer service, knowing that we bring value to the marketplace and continuing to uh, put time in there. So instead of, put, we, we were putting a ton of time on the front end and the back end was really easy, the dispositions piece, but it's gonna kind of flip flop now. And we're starting to see that uh, shift a little bit right now. And so this presentation is going to be insanely valuable for you guys. Mike is going to be a presenter at Flip Hacking Live. So this is a small taste of what he's going to be talking about there. So over this series of podcasts that I'm going to be putting out, these are going to be introducing you to some of the speakers that are going to be giving presentations at Flip Hacking Live. If you've never been, it's a three-day conference, October 13th, 14th, and 15th in Orlando, Florida. And we talk about everything. There's not... There's no holding back. It's not, I'm gonna share a little bit. As you'll tell in these presentations, they're sharing, they're, they're holding back nothing, they're sharing everything. So the speakers are required to give you the entire system, the entire process that they go through, the entire model of what they're doing and having success with, to hand it over to you so you can go use it in your business or your life. Uh, really incredible event. You go to fliphackinglive.com, grab a ticket. And on today's presentation, Mike is going to talk about how to increase profit on these deals, and especially in a cooling market. I think it's going to be very valuable for you. And if you like this and the other presentations, and if this is the first show you've ever listened to, go back and listen to the two previous ones uh, because those are some of the other recordings that we have. Um, we have some really cool stuff for you if you come to Flip Hacking Live. I'm going to be doing a 500K challenge starting on September 12th. Um, so we're going to go from September 12th to October 12th, and the person who raises the most, most money in that challenge outside of me is going to be presenting at Flip Hacking Live on stage. So there's only one way to earn your way in onto the stage, and that's to, to raise the most money during the 500K challenge with a ticket, and you get to earn your way in. Everybody else was invited, asked. Um, I've locked in every speaker except for one. There's one open spot, and if you want it, um, grab your ticket and come play full out and Go through the 500K challenge and raise a bunch of money for your real estate investing business. Um, go to flipbackandlive.com, grab your ticket, enjoy the show. I will see you guys at the end. My name is Bill Allen, and I'm the leader of a group of elite house flippers and wholesalers called Seven Figure Flipping. We don't brag or show off our success, but instead let integrity and stewardship be our guide. We are dedicated to helping people unlock the freedom they desperately need. If you ask other real estate investors, they will say to keep your secrets quiet. But we believe in abundance, not scarcity. And that's why we are the elite. We are Seven Figure Flipping, and this podcast is our playbook. I told you at the beginning of this, we're bringing people up and they're talking about some of their superpowers. And one of the things that I am good at in my business, one of the things that I would call my superpower uh, is dispositions. And if you're not familiar with what that term is, if you don't know, as a wholesaler, we get properties under contract with the seller, and then we have somebody in our company called our dispositions manager, and their job is to take that contract with the seller and find a house flipper or a landlord that we can sell it to, and we assign that contract. <clears throat> that process is called dispositions. Now, <clears throat> when I was starting my company, when I was growing it, and I started hiring, I hired salespeople, I hired transaction coordinators, I hired phone people, I hired a bookkeeper. The last person that I hired in my business was a dispositions manager because I love it and I'm really, really good at it. And I truly believe 
over the last you know few years things got a little easier on the disposition side and so because of that uh people got a little bit lazy on that side right they just stopped doing it the way that they were doing it before and uh tyler said it before right like you make money when you buy but you also make money when you sell and i I just really one of the things that i am most passionate about is the disposition side but here's the deal if you're a house flipper and you're listening around you're like okay this is my bathroom break i'm not a wholesaler i can go wait you do not want to go because you want to know exactly what wholesalers are thinking when they're selling you properties when they're trying to flip a contract to you and assign it to you you really should know how they think and what they're doing to try to make the most money possible and it's not to outsmart them it's not a matter of somebody has to lose everybody can win but you really want to hear this and so i said it a little while ago hopefully we all have our our pact that we made to not drink anything for the next couple of hours and so nobody has to go to the bathroom and so we can we can stay right here and keep powering through uh can we get the slides up uh, andre do we have that all right here we go i'm not sure if i can click through andre so i'm going to tell you to click when it's time to click all right guys here we go here here it is how to increase profit in every deal and crush your competition in a cooling market that's the key right this is a cooling market it's changing the the rules of the game are changing a little bit and so i want to teach you how to be successful not only as a wholesaler but as a house flipper because wholesalers are going to be doing the things that i'm talking about right now at least everybody in this audience is going to be doing this and they're going to just absolutely crush it and i want you guys to be able to play nice together and you should know how they think just like when tyler was talking and he said hey you wholesalers out there you need to understand how house flippers think and what is important to them same deal house flippers you really need to know how wholesalers think so okay let's go next slide please all right <clears throat> tyler said it right they say you make money when you buy slide i'll tell you what i'm gonna raise my finger like this andre so i don't keep saying slide uh you also make money when you sell i truly believe that wholesalers specifically have a real uh grasp a real good grasp of the front end sales right they know you make money when you buy but let's walk this through just for a second okay let's just hypothetically i get a property under contract as a as an acquisition as sales i talk to a homeowner i get a property under contract and i know that we should be able to assign that contract for twenty thousand dollars that should be the assignment fee when i buy it i made the money when i bought i bought it at a rate and at a price where we could make twenty thousand dollars and then we send that over to the dispositions manager and he just sells it to the first person who says that they're willing to take it and he makes ten thousand dollars right do you make money when you sell yeah you do that's where it starts but you also make the money when you sell at the back end right when you buy at the or sell to the the, the house flipper the landlord at the back end so that money that's realized on the acquisition side has to be protected on the disposition side. And I truly believe this is a blind spot with a lot of wholesalers. And so we're gonna try to get through and, and fix that up. Okay, uh, here we go, next slide. All right, selling to a buyer is a different sales process than dealing with a seller. And here's the deal. Here's why I think those two positions, okay? So this is like lesson number one, your acquisitions uh, person, your say, your front end salesperson should be different than your back end, your dispo guy or gal, right? It should be a different person. In the beginning, when you're just starting off and you're growing your company and you don't have a lot of people or it's just you, I get it. At one point, I did both jobs. But after doing both jobs, and hiring for both jobs and having people take personality assessments and try to understand a little bit more about them, I realized they're two different animals. Acquisitions, that front end salesperson, that is way more of a traditional sales role. You have to have listening skills, you have to have empathy, you have to have the ability to hear problems and listen to them and really try to fix the problem and really go deep into that person and pour into that person and create rapport and create a relationship. All that's important on the front end. On the back end, it's a negotiation. You're talking, it's B2B. You're a business, you're talking to, a, let's say a house flipper, for example, they're a business it's b2b you're negotiating you're not trying to counsel him on his life you're not trying to convince him that real estate is a good thing for him and his business he knows it he's coming to you to buy a house right usually when buyers come to me in the disposition side of my company they just want to know how much um give me some more information about the house uh would you take less how many offers have you gotten what's your best offer like they're asking negotiating questions 
And so the front end person with all the empathy and, and the, and the, you know, the, the needing to like connect with people and have that deeper connection and really understand problems, that personality is not necessarily required on the back end. It, it can happen and it can work. But I say in the back end, you need somebody who's a bit more in the negotiation vein, somebody who's a little bit more black and white B2B. It doesn't require that that uh, the, the same people skills that it does on the front end. So it's a different person. Okay, I said it before I alluded to it. Over the last two or three years, house prices have skyrocketed. The ability to buy houses has gotten so much harder. The, abil- the, the, the selling of the house, so much easier. And so as investors, all of us, house flippers, everybody, wholesalers, we have gotten really, really lazy on the process of selling our house, whether it be a retail sale or a wholesale assignment, right? They're both kind of a sales process. We've gotten really lazy. I am no exception. My company, it's just when it's, when you just throw a property out there and you don't even try and you get way more than you thought you were going to get for it, even if you did try, it's human nature to let your, your foot off the gas a little bit. And I think collectively as a group, investors, we have let our foot off the gas and we need to sharpen up our skills a little bit. Okay. The past two or three years, it's been easy. We have to get back to basics. Okay. It's all about relationships. People say this all the time. Real estate investing is a relationship business. It is. Okay. So even if you're an introvert, even if you don't really necessarily love socializing, I don't, I don't, I'm not a social person. I'm an introvert, but the key is how have you been treating people? Now, you've probably been treating sellers really, really nicely because it's really been hard to buy their houses. And so even if you're not a nice person, you sort of have to be nice, right? Because we really, really, really needed to connect with them in order to actually buy their house at 50 cents on the dollar when people are selling their house for 130% of what it was worth a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. So it's been a little bit of a process. We have to treat those people nicely. Now, on the back end, when we're dealing with the retail buyers or the house flippers and the landlords for us wholesalers, how have you been treating those folks? Have you been treating them like a number? Have you been dismissive? Have you told them you'll get back to them, but you didn't because you got 15 offers, all of them were over the person that they gave you that first full price offer that you said you'd get back to them. And you know, they made you a full price offer, but 15 people came in with a over asking, right? And so you started negotiating with those folks and you sold the property. Did you get back to the person who gave you the full price offer? Like how have you treated people over the last couple of years? Hopefully you can all say with honesty that you treated them really, really well. Because if you didn't, we're shifting, right? The balance of power is shifting. The leverage is shifting a little bit. And coming up, the buyers that you deal with and you've dealt with over the last few years or even longer, if you've been doing this longer, the power is going to shift a little bit more in their favor. Okay. And so hopefully you've treated them well, you've maintained good relationships. You've been professional. You've done what you say you're going to do. You've been responsive. You've been courteous, all those things. If you have, that was going to pay off for you in the coming months and years. If you haven't, you better start now. You better start getting on that right now. Okay. Next slide, please. All right. The goal here is to maximize profits. That might seem like an obvious thing, but I'm telling you, I have talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of real estate investors over the last five or six years. And if there's one area of their business that they consistently uh, uh, underestimate the value of, it's the back end sales. Everyone knows you want to make a lot of money, right? But here's the problem I have a house and I'm going to wholesale it, right? I need to assign this contract to somebody and I'm hoping to make $30,000 and I get an offer pretty quickly from somebody I know, he's a buddy of mine, flips houses. I was hoping to make 30, he offers me 25, I'll just take it, I'll just take it, right? Here's the problem, $25,000 is a lot of money. $30,000 is more and $30,000 is what you should be getting. Now on one deal, that means you lost $5,000 of potential profit that you thought you would make. Okay. Not good, but not the end of the world. Now let's assume you start ramping up your activities. You start ramping up your business. You start getting more deals. You start hiring people that are better than you at sales and all these things. And your the wheels of your business start really cranking and really going. Now you're doing a hundred deals a year. 
okay? And you're doing 100 deals a year, and on every deal, you're taking on average a $5,000 discount because you're selling it to this guy or this lady who will just buy anything in your market, and it's so easy. I hear it all the time. I guarantee somebody on this call has said at one point, dispositions is easy. I have somebody in my market who will buy everything. They'll buy everything I have, right? If you've said that before, you're losing money. In this case, a $5,000 discount on average, 100 properties a year that you're doing, that's a half a million dollars in profit that you're giving up because you're not taking that part of it seriously. So it starts with having a target profit. What do you expect to make on every transaction, right? Every target, every for every shot you take, if you don't have a target, you're gonna miss because there is no target. And so you need to start with a target. You need to know what you expect to make in your market, right? In my market for a wholesale deal in Michigan, $15,000 is pretty good, pretty much a base hit, right? It's not nothing to write home about, but it's pretty good, okay? So you need to know where that average is so you can make sure your team is focusing on that. Some of my competition in Michigan, they make three or $4,000 on average. Why? Because that's what they expect to make. That's their target. That's, that's where they set the bar for themselves. Okay, next next slide, please. All right, but you wanna, you wanna maximize your profits, but here's the deal. It's okay to get way more than that. If you set your goal at 15, it's okay to make 20. It's okay to make 40. We have a deal that we're gonna make $50,000 in profit on an assignment deal, right? But wait, my target's 15. How do you make 50? Because 15 is the minimum. 15 is what we must make in order for my team to feel like they have succeeded on that deal. But we wanna make more, right? We reserve the right to make more, but 15 is like the bottom. And so sometimes, sometimes we do make 50, sometimes we make 10 and that's not awesome. And we don't celebrate that necessarily, right? Because we wanna make sure 15 is the minimum. And so that's, that's the goal is to have that, that, that target, but realize you can make more. Okay, so how much should a wholesaler make? This is a limiting belief that some of you may or may not have. If you're a house flipper, you may definitely have it. I know more house flippers have this limiting belief than wholesalers, but I know a lot of wholesalers that believe it too. I've talked to wholesalers that said, I just mark all my deals up $5,000. That's that's enough for me. I think that's fair, right? And then I've talked to house flippers who have said, you don't deserve to make more than $5,000 on a deal. You're a wholesaler. You don't have any skin in the game. Why should you make more than $5,000? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I'll give you the biggest one. As a wholesaler, when my marketing is fully cranked up and we're sending out uh, our marketing at full capacity, we're spending about $30,000 a year on, I'm sorry, a month, $30,000 a month on marketing. Now, when I send that $30,000 out of my business, I'm not buying an asset. I'm not buying something tangible, I'm buying marketing. And if nothing comes back to me that month, I have nothing I can sell, I have no way to recoup that money, it's in the ether, it's gone, okay? Now, on the other side of that, if I'm a house flipper and I'm going to buy a house and I buy that house and things go kind of wrong and the rehab goes a little over and the market changes and all that, I still have an asset that if you bought it right, should be worth every bit of the money that you borrowed to buy it, right? And so is house flipping risky? Sure, of course. It can be very risky, of course. Is wholesaling risky? Do we deserve to make as much as we can on every deal? Of course, because we're we're risking a lot. We're doing a lot of sales and marketing stuff and, and buying these deals and putting them on a platter so that landlords and house flippers have a deal ready made for them. It's sitting there, all they have to do is take it, okay? The key is, as a, as a wholesaler and a house flipper, when you guys are working together, is to come up with a win-win. And so the house that I'm gonna make 50,000 on, the house flipper is hitting his numbers. He's going to make the profit on that property that he expects to make. We're both happy, we're both, both making really good profit. So you need to make sure as an investor, forget wholesaling and flipping for a minute. As an investor, your, your responsibility to not only yourself and your family, but if you have people that work for you, it's your responsibility to them and their family to maximize every single deal. Okay. You have to avoid the good enough mindset. Short story in my business, my dispositions manager came to me one time years ago, it's been a long time, and he said, uh, on this deal that we have, we should make $12,000 in profit. And I said, okay, well, 
It's not what we're shooting for, but $12,000. Okay. I, I hear you. Fast forward, we get an offer on it and he's going to take it. And I said, good. What was the offer? And he tells me, I said, good. How much profit are we going to make? And he said, $8,000. I said, wait a minute. You said $12,000 was what we were going to make. And he said, well, 8,000 is pretty good. It's a lot of money. And, and I proceeded to uh, have, a, have a bit of a meltdown. Right? I said, it's not, it is a lot of money. Of course it is. But you said we were going to make 12. That was our target was 12. And I held him to it and I pushed him and we ended up making 12 on that deal. Because for me, it was only $4,000 difference, but we were doing 100 deals at that point. So every deal taking a $4,000 discount, like no big deal, is $400,000 of lost profit, right? He wasn't prepared to make that up. I wasn't prepared to make that up. And so you have to avoid the good enough mindset. It is not just good enough. You do as much as you can do on every deal. Every deal should be maximized. That doesn't mean you, you're, you're taking advantage of people or you're being a bad person, but you're negotiating, right? You're getting the best deal pro- possible for you, your family, your employees, their family, and for the health of your business. You can't keep employing people if you're taking discounts and you go out of business because you're not sustainable because you're not profitable enough. So avoid the good enough mindset. Okay. All right. Does anybody, I don't, I'm not doing show of hands or really, so it's kind of rhetorical. Do you know what the most notorious deal killer is? And I, I tried to pick a graphic that wasn't going to be overly scary, but right, this guy's pretty scary. Do we all know what's the worst thing for your business? What will kill deals faster than anything in your business? Suspenseful music. Next slide. Time. Time kills deals. Say it with me. Time kills deals. When you get a property under contract, the longer that contract remains unfulfilled or you, the longer it goes before you actually close on that, that property, only bad things happen. If you can tell me something good that happens when deals sort of sit around and it goes a little longer than it should have and you're trying to get extensions from the seller, if you can think of good scenarios around that, uh, I'd like to know. But my experience in doing several hundred deals over the last several years is every time a contract sits for any length of time beyond what we expected. And for me and my business, it's like 30 days maximum, you know, hopefully be around two weeks, but two weeks, two to four weeks. If it sits around longer than that, we usually lose the deal for a number of reasons, a million reasons, right? So time kills deals and you have to have a sense of urgency. Tyler talked about it even in the house flipping world, right? There has to be a sense of urgency. What happens when a house goes too long during the renovation period. What what things happen? If we tried to name 10 things that happened to your house when the renovation goes for a year or for eight months and it was only supposed to be one month, we can name a lot of things, most of them not good. Carrying costs, no good. Vandalism, no good. Market change in the wrong direction, no good, right? Just all kinds of things happen and none of them are good. Everything you do in this business and this gap time coming up, this this market correction, whatever you want to call it, the market cooling off, the market declining, whatever you want to call it. Now more than ever, you cannot afford for time to lapse between you getting contracts, you renovating, selling the house or getting contracts and, and signing uh, assignment contracts with your buyers. All that stuff needs to happen quickly. Okay, next slide. Okay. Just to give you something you can kind of like write down, take a screenshot of, just to illustrate the time factor, these are the metrics or the KPIs, whatever you want to call them, that I use for my dispositions department. They're all time-based except the last one, right? We need a target, right? A contract value target. It could be whatever it is in your in your in your neighborhood, right? In your in your market. 10K, 15K, 25K, doesn't matter. But from purchase agreement to the marketing going out from purchase agreement to the time that I present it to my buyers, two days or less. From the time the marketing goes out to I expect to get a deposit from a buyer that they're gonna buy the property and they're committing to buying the property, 10 days or less. From the time that I have the purchase agreement originally signed with the seller until I close, I said it a minute ago, 30 days or less. From the time that I get that deposit I talked about until I close, 10 days or less. 
from the time that the purchase agreement expires. And for us in our business, when we sign uh, purchase agreements, we usually put an expiration date on that. It's like 30 to 45 days that the, the contract expires. And so the seller doesn't feel like they can be strung along forever. We put that expiration on there. From the time of that expiration, from the time we get the, P, the PA and that we write that expiration date, let's just say it's 30 days from now until the time we actually close, I want there to be a week gap, meaning if we have 30 days to close or say four weeks to close, I want to close in three weeks. That gives me one week of flexibility in case that closing doesn't happen. Okay. Because if we close on the date, the contract expires and something goes wrong on the buy side, they, maybe their money doesn't come through. Something happens, somebody gets sick, whatever, who knows? Title company has a problem, whatever it is, we could lose that contract. So I don't want there to be less than seven days between when that contract expires and when we close. Okay, next. So we have to get back to basics. Next. All right. So when I say get back to basics, a friend of mine and a mentor of mine, Andy McFarlane, he calls it blocking and tackling. Okay. We have to go back to blocking and tackling. This is not time for razzle dazzle. It's not time for trick plays. It's time for us to dial in our processes and go back to following them or create processes and start following them, right? So whether you have processes that you sort of put on the back burner or you've been cutting corners and you're not really following it, that's not going to work for you in the coming market, in my opinion. And if you don't have any processes, that's not good, but we need to create those processes and you need to start following them so that like, um, you know, Tyler, if you think about like his processes, right, in his business, he went through with them, right? They're, they're very structured. He's very structured in what he does. He got all of his contractors together to agree on some pricing so that they could be a little bit better and quicker, right? Tyler is a great example of someone who is very process driven. He's very successful. Most people I know who are successful in this business, they are process driven. And so we need to get back to them or we need to create them. Okay. So one process that I use and the disposition side of my company, it's a four-step process. So when we get a property under contract with our seller, it goes to my dispositions manager and he does these four things. Number one, he recomps the property. Maybe this property was comped a month ago. Maybe it was comped two months ago. Who knows? Maybe it was six months ago when we originally looked at the house and we didn't buy it right away. We did follow up and now we got it under contract. Hopefully we comped it again, but I don't let my dispositions manager rely on comps that he didn't pull himself. So he goes in and comps the property, right? We get the ARV. The other number that we want to know that's a little bit unique to my business. I, I kind of made this acronym up and we use it internally, but it's called CC. CCV. CCV stands for current condition value. In other words, what is the house worth today in its current condition, not ARV, current condition. So in this case, you see the house is worth $120,000 fully renovated today. Right now it's worth 50 to 55. Okay. It's old. It's, it's outdated. It's grandma's house. It doesn't have a new kitchen and bathroom. The roof is getting older. The flooring is no good. There's just issues, right? It's not, it's not a totally bad house. It's just, it needs work. And so we want to know what the current condition value is. Then he puts the link in there of all the comparables that he found. So we can all reference those. Step two, we estimate renovation. Now he may or may not go out to the property, but he's going to still do an estimate. And maybe it's based off of the acquisitions pictures because our acquisitions team, they know that we want a minimum of like 40 to 50 pictures of any house minimum. Okay. So that's several angles of every room, several of the outside. I want pictures of all the windows, the electric, any plumbing issues that there are like everything, right? We want tons of pictures. So my dispositions manager can look at those pictures and come up with a reasonable estimate for rehab. It's not intended to be perfect. We just want to get in the ballpark. So we know how to appropriately price this property. You can't price a property to a house flipper, right? Who's going to be your buyer. If you don't have some understanding of what he or she thinks it's going to take to renovate that house. So we have to come up with that. In this case, it was $20,000. Step number three, we estimate what the sale price will be. This is not the asking price. That is not the price that we're going to ask our buyers for. It's what we think we're going to end up taking. Okay. And there's a big difference sometimes. So in this case, step number four, we create what's called a marketing life cycle. What happened in my business for a long time 
was I would ask my dispositions manager, his name's Connor. I would ask him, Connor, what are we doing next with this property? What's the next marketing step that we're going to do? And he'd go, well, we're going to, we're going to remarket it tomorrow. And I'd go, okay. And then a couple of days go by, I go, what's the next step with that property? Like, what's the next step in the marketing? Like, what are you going to do next? And he would have to tell me, we had these conversations and I said, you know what? Why don't we just come up with the best possible plan we can day one? If everything goes the way we expect or goes according to how most deals go, this is the marketing life cycle. This is exactly what we're going to do. This is how much we're going to market it for day one. This is when we're um, projecting that we may have to lower the price a little bit. And then here's some other steps along the way. And you can see on 925, it's going to get listed. Uh, this is like a year old, but on 925, it's going to get listed for $71,500. Day two, we're going we're gonna to send it back out to our buyers list at the opposite time of day, right? So on the first day, we marketed it out at 7 a.m. The next day, we're gonna market it at four. Why? Because too many times I would get calls from buyers and they would say, hey, I see you sold this property. <clears throat> I never saw you market it the first day. I didn't know, I would have paid full price. I just didn't see it. And so what I realized was, some people are good at looking at their emails in the morning. Some people are not. Some people are better looking at them in the afternoon. And so we send it out in the morning and then we send it out in the afternoon. Or maybe sometimes we send it out in the afternoon first, and then we send it out in the morning the next day. Same price because we want to capture as many eyeballs as possible. You'll also notice on here, not only do we email it out to our buyers day one, we also send a voice message and a text blast. Why? People miss emails. If you send me an email, it's a 50-50 chance if I'm going to see it. I hired an assistant specifically to make sure I don't miss emails because I'm notorious. And so if she's if she misses it for some reason or she's gone or on vacation or whatever, I might miss your email. But if you send me a text message, I'll see it 100% of the time, 100% of the time. I have zero unread text messages at all times. I will see it. If you send me a voice message, I'll see that too, right? A voicemail, I'll see it. So we send it that way too. And then we mark it down in a few days. And then a few days later, we may list it on the MLS and then we may just decide to buy it ourselves, right? So we have these, pro we know what's gonna happen. It can change, right? It's a living it's a living mar market life cycle, right? It can change, but that's day one, what we're going to do. And, in, and I can go into the CRM and I can look, if anything changed, it gets changed. And so I can go in there and I can see where we are all along the way with all of our properties, okay. We have to be good marketers, especially in the coming market, right? Buyers are going to have more opportunities than they've ever had. And so your marketing piece, the, the, the piece of marketing that you send out to your buyers to offer them on properties that you have under contract, you have to think about the marketing side of this. We cannot just throw raw meat to the wolves, right? Last two years, we throw every property we have is like raw meat and it's like throwing raw meat to wolves, right? They just go after it and they fight over it and we get the best price possible. Usually more than we ever thought we would get. How many, how many times did you sell, if you're a house flipper or a wholesaler or whatever, how many times over the last few years did you tell someone, I can't believe I got so much more than I thought I was going to get? I sold my personal residence. I got way more than I thought I was going to get. I understand real estate. I understand comping. I knew what my house was worth. I got significantly over that. It wasn't worth what they paid, but they paid it, right? That's the world that we lived in. We don't live in that world anymore. It's a new world. And so we have to pay attention to our marketing pieces. We have to make sure that we're conveying a sense of urgency, scarcity, excitement. You need to really bring it with these properties because they're going to be getting, meaning your buyers, they're going to be getting a lot of opportunities. <clears throat> Here's a snapshot of what my, my email looks like if you're on my buyer's list. And I kind of split it in half so you can see everything. On the top, name of the company. If you want to be on my buyer's list, you can see there's a link there. Sign up to see all of our deals at webuyroi.com. Uh, next line is the property address. It's clickable. So if you click that on your browser or your phone, it'll take you to Google Maps and it'll show you where it is because I know as so someone who has slipped houses, I know that's the first thing I want to know. I don't recognize that street. I want to see where it is. That can tell a whole story right there if I just know where it is in town. Next one is the price. It says wholesale price, so there's no question there. Um, realtors add your fee, whatever you like. Anything over and above the asking is for you. So if they want to send this to their personal buyers or people they know that are looking, I don't care what they do, but I'm not paying them out of the $115,500. They have to create that margin on their own. Next, please. Okay, next part of it says we're selling our assignable purchase contract on this property. Very clear. It tells everyone that we are not the owners. We have an assignable purchase agreement. 
It's very important that you put that in there. It's a nice little disclaimer to kind of keep you out of hot water in some gray areas. Showing requests that have an offer included will be given priority. What does that mean? Well, if I send this to you and you're on my buyer's list and you uh, shoot me a text or call me and say, hey, I want to see this house tomorrow. I'll go, okay, good. But first, tell me what looking at the pictures, looking at everything that I've given you, which is a lot to make a decision. Assuming when you go to the house, it looks exactly like the pictures that I just took a week ago. What would your offer be? I require that in writing in an email. It's not legally binding. It doesn't obligate them. It's not a contract. I just want to know that they're going to at least take the energy to do their due diligence and tell me what they would pay for the house, assuming it looks exactly like it should look. If they're not willing to take that time, if they're not willing to go through that that process, I'm not letting them come to the house. They're not coming. So that's a, that's a decision I made. I think it's a good decision. Maybe when you're brand, brand new and you've never done a deal and you're sort of trying to get started, maybe you'll let, you know, you'll let that slide a little bit, but eventually I promise you, you'll, you'll go to something like that because people will waste your time. They'll, they want to go out and see it because they have time. They don't have the money. They're, they're not even that serious, but they want to go see it because it sounds like a fun little field trip and they were on some webinar and they got excited excited about real estate. And so they're going to go look, but they're not really serious. Okay. So I make people give me uh, a soft offer. Uh, okay. Next I go through bedrooms and bathrooms, give them some of that stuff. <clears throat> I tell them what the market rent is for the property. I give them some additional information. It's walking distance from downtown Clawson. needs interior rehab, awesome rental market, right? How descriptive is that information? Not very, doesn't give them much because anything I put in there, is opinion. It's it's sort of subjective. It doesn't mean because I think it, somebody else is going to think it. And so you should not be putting any of your subjective opinions, in my, in, in my opinion, don't give anybody your subjective opinions in your marketing piece, right? You may say needs a new roof. Well, you say it needs a new roof because it has, you know, five years left. And it's like, well, it's got five years left on a 30 year roof. That's pretty old. It needs a new roof. That's your opinion. The person buying this might look at that and go, that's perfectly fine. I'm fine with that. I'm not replacing the roof. And so now you're making them think the rehab is higher than it's going to be for them. Whether they're right or wrong, it doesn't necessarily matter, right? They're buying the house. They can do, you know, do you monitor people's rehab jobs after you wholesale them a house? No, of course not. It's up to them. It's their business. It's none of your business. So I don't tell them what renovation it needs exactly. And I don't give them a renovation estimate. I don't. My estimate will be different than yours. Yours will be different than mine. And both of ours will be different from Tyler's, right? When he looks at it. So I don't give that. It's always bad information. It's either too high or too low for the majority of the people getting this email. So I don't do it. Click here for more properties to see a full list of our properties. There's another link. They can not only see this one, but if they're like, hey, this doesn't work for me, but I've never got an email from this person. I don't know who it is. I'm, I'm going to see what else they have. They can click that and they can see what else we have. And at the bottom, there's a link that says, if you've never purchased a property before from us, download our buying process. And that helps answer a lot of questions. Okay, next. Okay, methods that you can use to distribute your deals to buyers. This is not all inclusive, guys, but this is a good starter list for you because right now, as we move into the next phase of the, of the real estate market, like I said, selling properties is going to be a little bit more tricky. You don't have the same leverage. The market isn't maybe as hot. <clears throat> and so you have to be really sharp on where you're making these properties available. Okay, this is going to be like a, a reveal line at a time, Andre, so you know. All right, let's go to the first one. Email marketing. I talked about that. It's the number one way that we distribute our deals to our buyers. It's effective. It allows us to give a lot of information. There's clickable links. Email marketing is king when it comes to buyers. Okay, next. Craigslist. We use it. Not all the time. It's not as awesome, but it's it's an avenue. It's People do go on Craigslist to look for these things. You should be posting on a Craigslist, especially if you're struggling to sell. Next one, social media. Again, some people have much more luck than others, but it's available to you and it's free. So you should be using it. Auction sites. I don't personally do this. I know people who do. It works. If you're struggling in your market to sell deals, it's something you can look into. Ringless voicemail. We do use this in our process. We use it routinely. Day one, if you remember my, my uh, four-step uh, uh, 
process and my marketing life cycle, the first day we do ringless voicemail in our business, which ringless voicemail is basically, uh, you send a message, it bypasses the ring and it goes straight to their voicemail and you can leave a message. Next one, text blast. We use this on day one of our marketing, we send out a text blast. Okay, next one is real estate websites like bigger pockets or something like that where anywhere where real estate investor congregate online you should be posting your deals jv with someone right if you all else fails and you cannot find anyone to buy your property find another person in your market another wholesaler who will work with you and let you use their buyers list for a split of the deal there's nothing wrong with that right it's the old saying 50 percent of something is better than 100 percent of nothing you don't want to have 100 percent of nothing 100 percent of nothing is no business no revenue you're out of business so you don't want that okay okay pro tip this is something that took me a long time to learn in my business. I wasn't doing it very effectively and I had to learn to get better. And that is making sure that your team is working together. Okay. What do I mean by that? Well, you want to make sure that when your acquisition person, before they even go out on an appointment, that they are comping the property. Okay. They're making sure they understand what that property could be worth, should be worth after it's fully renovated, obviously. And they need to come up with their maximum allowable offer, correct? So I suggest, and in my business, what I did was I had my acquisitions person sit down with my dispositions person and they would talk and they would come to an agreement on what they believe that house is actually worth right now, CCV, current condition value, and after renovation at some point, ARV. The reason I did that was as you grow and scale, as your business matures, you start having these natural sort of turf wars happening in your business. It can happen. I've heard it happen to more businesses than mine where acquisition goes out, they get something under contract and they think it's a killer deal. They give it to dispositions. Disposition goes out to talk to the buyers and send it out to the buyers and having discussions. And he's like, this deal's terrible. And, and he sells it for less than the acquisitions person thinks that he should have. Now, your acquisitions person probably is getting paid on commission. So they're not happy when houses don't sell at the price that they think they should sell for. And so you have this natural conflict. Acquisitions are saying dispositions isn't doing a good job. They're not selling these properties at the value they should be. And the dispositions person is saying, no, 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 no. These are terrible, terrible deals. Our acquisitions guy is signing deals that are terrible. He's paying too much. He's not giving me anything to work with. And it's a lot of like cross blaming. And so I solved that problem by saying you two will both sit down before we ever write a purchase agreement and you'll come to an agreement on what this thing's worth. So everyone is fully aware what we're going to buy it for and what we expect to sell it for. So that's just a little pro tip. I would have those two people sit down. If it's the same person, just think of it on both sides because Dispo has the ear and they're having conversations with buyers. They know what the buyers are saying. On the other side, acquisitions knows what sellers are saying and what they're feeling and what their fears are and what they're afraid of and all these things that are contributing to the price that they're offering. Those two people need to come together. They need to communicate before anything significant happens so that everyone's on the same page. Okay. Okay, ideas for building your buyer's list. Now, I believe as a wholesaler, the value of your business is two things. It's your systems and processes and people, right? That the whole like interworking of your of your of your business, right? Systems, processes, people, like that's that's one side of it. The other side of it though, that's equally as value is your buyer's list. If you took my buyer's list from me and erased my memory and my hard drive and I could never ever remember who any of my buyers were, right? Just amnesia it would take me a long time or it would take me more time than it should to build my business back. And here's why. When I started wholesaling, I had a handful of buyers that bought most of my stuff. They bought most of my properties. Fast forward seven, seven years, none of the people who bought properties, properties from me in year one and mostly in year two, none of them are buying properties from me now. They're all still in business. They're all still buying properties. They're st all still active but my buyers list has grown, matured, and I've gotten some really great, great buyers, like high volume buyers, hedge funds, like my buyers list is strong. And so the people who bought from me five or six years ago, they can't pay the prices that I am able to command now with my buyers list. So if you're a wholesaler and you're like struggling or you're getting, even if you're just getting started, like 
understand that your buyers list is the value of your company in the beginning because in the beginning you probably don't have processes and you don't have people all you have is your buyers list you need to protect it and you need to nurture it and you need to treat those folks really really well because they are going to be the reason you succeed early on later on it'll be your internal team and your processes will have a huge huge impact on your success and failure but don't get me wrong if you took my buyers list and threw it away and gave me a buyers list of one of my competitors my revenue would go down their buyers list just isn't as good so here's some ideas for building your buyers list let's go so one by one networking organic this is great there are people who built an entire business on networking people friends of mine that i know built it on networking for me networking was really instrumental early on i went to meetups i went to rias i shook hands i talked to people i made sure i was in the room locally where people were getting together and i got them on my buyers list and i worked with them so it's an absolute great first step and something you should do periodically for sure next one please facebook linkedin instagram social media right I don't get a ton of buyers from social media, but I know people who do, right? I could just be doing it not, not well, but that's something that you should be working is social media. Next one. Realtors. Realtors are a great source of finding buyers. People reach out to realtors all the time and they're looking for investment opportunities. Realtors don't typically work with properties that are great investment opportunities sometimes, and it depends on the market over the last two years. Were we finding tons of deals on the MLS? Some of us, maybe, but I think the majority of us were not because everything was going so high. It was really, really difficult. When the market changes, that's gonna change, right? Realtors will have more people that need to sell their house than they have in the past. And so networking with realtors and really making friends with them is a, is a good thing for you. Next one. Pulling a list of buyers and sending a letter. You can do this on ListSource, okay? So there's a service called ListSource, it's listsource.com. You can go on there and find, you can sort and have criteria and pull lists that are public record, okay? And what you wanna pull the list on is anybody who's bought a property, let's say in the last six months to a year, okay? They bought it without using a mortgage, okay? So they bought it with cash. They bought it inside of an LLC or some sort of a business entity and it's not owner occupied. It's, a, it's not, they're not living there, right? They live somewhere else. It's not their primary residence. Those things, all of those things together, that's a profile of a buyer. That's an investor. I send those folks letters and I tell them, hey, listen, I see that you bought a property in the last six months and it appears that it's an investment property for you. Congratulations. I buy properties offline and off market all the time. I come, I, I come across tons of opportunities to buy properties off market. I can't always buy them all. It looks like you buy off-market properties. If I found something that I was not able to buy, would you be interested in seeing these opportunities? It's a very simple letter. It gives me tremendous response rate. People definitely want to see these properties. And that's the way that I built my buyers list mostly. Like that's really how I found hedge funds and things like that. Hedge funds don't show up at your local RIA usually. Like they're not going to be there looking for you. You have to find them. And this is a great way to find them. Okay, next one. Property management companies, clients, right? The property management companies' clients are buyers. They're landlords. They're buying properties. You know, assume they were buying properties, or some of them are buying properties. That's how they build their portfolio. Their portfolio. So, if you can talk to these property management companies and get to know them and make friends with them and create relationships and just say, "Hey, I've got these, I've got these properties that come across my desk. I don't want them all. Right? Do you think your community, would your clients be interested in seeing more opportunity? It's a win-win. The property management company, of course, wants his clients to find more properties and give them to him to manage, right? That makes sense. And for you, it obviously makes sense because you've got this pool of people that want to buy properties. So if you're in a market where rentals work, then this is an excellent, excellent strategy. Okay, next. Networking with builders and contractors. Whoa, that was way next. Networking with, networking with builders and contractors. Pretty self-explanatory. Builders are buying properties, usually to tear down, sometimes to renovate. Sometimes they just want the land, but that's an opportunity for you. And real estate websites, like I said, like Bigger Pockets. Your buyers are on websites like that. Bigger Pockets just happens to be you know, the biggest one in the world. But there are other ones, but I would be going in there looking for buyers as well. Okay. Skip tracing wholesaler deals in your market. 
This is kind of a ninja tactic, and it's something that we have talked about internally inside of the seven figure flipping group. Um, what it is is people like me, wholesalers, I send properties out to my buyers list, right? I send them out to it. One person buys it, right? Everyone can't buy it. But if you get on those lists like mine and you skip trace the properties two or three months after I send them out to my buyers list, you're going to find my buyers because that's who's buying my properties, right? So it's a great way to find buyers. Use leverage your competitors lists. Okay. Final thoughts. Next one. Okay. This is the time to succeed in real estate. Let's go quick, Andre. This is the time to succeed. Build relationships with your current buyers. Find and build relationships with new buyers. The coming market is going to bring huge, huge opportunities for us. Uh, the book Art of War by Sun Tzu, most of you have heard of it. A great line in this book that I, I think applies to the market that we're in now. Andre, next. In the midst of chaos, there's also opportunity. I think that applies right now to where we are in the market. Uh, there is a little bit of chaos. There's probably going to be more, but now is the time. Now is there's so much opportunity right now. Okay. All right, guys, that's it for me. I appreciate you. I appreciate you sticking in there with me. Hopefully that was good information for you and uh, you got something out of that. I do think that Dispo is gonna be really, really huge, just so huge going forward, not only for wholesalers, but you need to understand them as a house flipper. All right, how was that for you guys? Mike Simmons always brings the heat, doesn't he? I'm really impressed every time I hear him speak. I'm so thankful that he was around to kind of moderate and MC the uh, accelerator that I wasn't able to attend last week and to know that the team is able to run that without me to provide insanely valuable content to you guys and I don't have to be there it's incredible and I think that's what we're all looking for in our business right we're looking for people to come up around us to help support us and allow us to do the things that we want and need to do and while the business continues to run that's something else that we're going to talk about at flip hacking live I've got a couple speakers going to talk about building the business going to talk about systems and processes hiring operations things like that as you start growing your company so this event is for brand new investors who are just looking for their first deal. It's not too advanced for you, I promise you that. And it's for more experienced investors where if you just get 10 or 15% tweak in your business, you should be attending all every single event that you can, you know, while still running your company, obviously. But I love going to events. I get so much from them, hundreds of pages, but I really only take one or two things. Like I'm at a point in my business, in my life, and my financial time that I just need one or two things, just small tweaks and change five, 10% of my business. That's a massive amount. When you're running seven figure businesses, if you can just change that by five or 10%, we're talking about, you know, six figure deltas in your business, six figure increases. So really, really powerful to come to these events. And if you're brand new, to network with people like that, to understand the mindset difference. The uh, belief system is totally different. So just sitting down next to somebody else that you don't realize is making seven figures a year. And it's, it's just uh, the, that shift is powerful. You have to be in person. You have to immerse yourself in that environment and that culture and that place in order to feel that. And that's why we do it in person. That's why I will do it in person as long as humanly possible. And, um, and this year it's only in person. So go to flippackinglive.com, grab your ticket, and I will see you there.